0: Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation
1: of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. All right, well, we're going to kick off and we're going to pray. Is there anybody who'd like to pray? I mean, I don't have to hog the praying, right? Okay, I'll do it. Everybody's like, I can't talk to ground right now. I can't form a thought. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We are grateful for your love. We're thankful that you have made us like you, which makes us reasoning creatures, which makes us rational, that we can see the logic in things. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, go through this little course and we look through the <laughs> what great minds have put out there and the effects thereof. We pray that you would teach us, if nothing else, to be discerning, that we would look to you for discernment as the source of our wisdom, not necessarily our knowledge, or definitely not ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this course, and I was reminded it is a course has at it its core. Does anybody remember what the the Bible verse was we talked about last week? Mm-hmm. Lanning? I'm on the spot, Brian. I help me out there buddy. you, you forgot
0: already?
1: Yes I did. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now we don't feel bad if you forgot
1: <laughs> anybody remember? Colossians? What? it was, what? was Colossians. Ephesians, Philippians, yeah. trying to get to it, it's Colossians 2, yeah. Uh, 2 8. yeah, so Paul is talking to the Colossians, and he says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, that's our pivot verse. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So, this one's a little floppy. So does anybody remember, was anybody, who was here? Okay, first of all, who was here last week? Raise your hand. All right. Good. It's about half of you. All right. So who was here last week and remembers where we started? Who we covered? Broadbrush. I have to remember details. Any names? Socrates. Socrates. And then his student. Who was the student? Plato. Right. Plato. And then we got the next student who was, you know, And you remember, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, morons, right? (laughs) Remember that from Prince's Bride? (laughs) As I recall, it was a Sicilian who said that, so. And he did, yeah, a short one, who did not end up in a good place afterwards. Yes, that's the problem. Uh Uh-oh, now I'm intimidated. You can't hear? (laughs) To me, it's like, echoing in here. It's cavernous. All right. So, last week, the question that we left, um, what role should be, I don't, my slides are not slides. Well, I gave slides, but I'm sure Tim fixed them. Um, Because remember, last week was my first PowerPoint presentation ever. You so the people who were here last week, it was an epic day. You should have written it in your diaries. What role does faith play in your observed reality? And then the other question was, do you see sophism, skepticism, and nominalism in your day-to-day life? So does anybody remember what sophism was? Oh. Well, that, what did you say? It sounds like the exaltation of well, the study, or the love of wisdom, yeah. They might remember why Sophism was, uh, why Socrates or Socrates was pushing against Sophism. Crickets, crickets, crickets. Right. But do you remember what the, the problem was with Sophism? People were... The Sophists were a group of teachers in Greece, specifically in Athens, who were basically willing to say whatever they needed to say to get their point across, to get whatever it was they wanted. And what Socrates saw that, he saw that as the death of virtue, and by extension, the death of virtue would be the death of the city-state. Okay? Because without virtue, you would bend laws and manipulate things, and everything would become, starts with a C, Well, yes, we don't want chaos. Corrupt. Everything would become corrupt. So despite the fact that he was an amiable pagan, as somebody used to call him, uh, he actually recognized that morality had a place in the republic, or at least in the city-state. And, of course, eventually, everybody remembers what happens to Socrates, right? Because he has an influence with the the youth of Athens and because of a specious argument that sophists, see the sophists get him in the end because the sophists figured out how to use the law to put Socrates under the gun, metaphorically speaking because guns weren't invented yet, and got him to the point where he would either have to be banished from Athens or he could choose uh, death. And of course, Classical Conversations man back there remembers. What did he choose? He chose death. death. Yeah, he chose death because without the city-state, without Athens, there's no point in wandering the earth, okay? So you have sophism, and then we got to skepticism. Anybody remember what skepticism is? It is exactly what it sounds like. It's not a trick question. Anybody want to tell me what skepticism is? Anybody want to vouchsafe or venture a definition? Yes, sir. There are no absolute truths. There are no absolute truths, including the absolute truth that I just stated. You got to love skeptics. You really do. You're like, bless your heart. Question? Question? Would that be nihilism or nihilism? Well, don't jump the gun, James. We're going to get (laughs) there. It could result in it. And we're going to cover that today. So not nihilism, but how it gets to that. All right. And then nominalism from the Greek nomen, which means you remember you did. La- <sighs> Is it name? name exactly name, name. Yeah. So basically, uh, Aristotle was your nominalist in that. He's like, oh, bird, tree. Bird is bird, tree is tree. And because of the law of non-contradiction, a bird can't be a bird if it's a tree. You know, men, women. You kind of get where I'm going with that one. Or don't you? <laughs> there you go. and. All of these things, we're not just going over these things because it's a nice history lesson. We're not just going over these things because uh, Brian is a nerd and he enjoys this kind of stuff. We're going over these things because you were, did anybody see sophism, skepticism? I'm going to come back. So now that we've gone over what those things are, did anybody go home and think about that and say, where do I see this in my life? Not necessarily in my life, me personally, but do I Observe this in the world around me. Nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. But go ahead. What do you mean by no, nothing I mean,
0: new? I wasn't here last week so I didn't go home and think
1: about it. But you I didn't can know you, to think about it. Yes. What <laughs> you shared. Okay. So this Good.
0: Morning, when you were defining him I thought, Huh, nothing new under the sun that that you know what was then is today and there is no still still those those I don't even call them schools of thought. It's just the way the worldviews are way of
1: thinking. Worldviews are way of thinking. I
0: yeah. think skepticism, um, especially, you know, has had a lot of effect And that, you know, I, I felt I felt like most of the ancient philosophers acknowledged that there was a truth and were trying to look for a
1: truth. Right.
0: But to say that there is no truth saying like there's nothing to actually look for. Right. And so I see a lot of that today. I think most of worldly thinking is based on that philosophy actually.
1: Did everybody hear what Cindy said? Would anybody like to push back against that or would you agree with her? We're not trying to start an argument but... I'd I have a skepticism that
0: you have the idea now of like the high Especially in the younger generation, I think a lot of people don't even recognize a singular truth. They're just doing what makes them happy because that's all they have to guide them.
1: So it's like Sheryl Crow said if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. It's kind of an interesting song. And then we finished up last week with John Locke if we have a slide, yeah, John Locke and his essay Concerning concerning Human Understanding from 1690. And Locke is the, it is interesting because Locke was basically the basis, we divided the uh, history of thought into ancient, medieval, and modern, and it's hard to, pin in history exactly where, because a lot of things happen at the same time. But that 17th century, that 1600s, oh my goodness. It's interesting because you have, in the 1600s, you've got the Puritans becoming ascendant in England, not just as a school of theology, but also in government. And of course, that was what eventually leads to the ruination of Puritanism. But John Locke has lived through that. He lived through the English Civil War, the execution of a king because of law, because the king supposedly did not recognize the rights of the people. And he comes out of that, all that, in 1690 with his essay concerning human understanding where he says these are the takeaways. He doesn't actually use the word tabula rasa. That's something that somebody stuck in there, but... Humans are born without innate ideas or knowledge. They are born essentially as tabula rasa or blank slates. And that's basically the basis for modern educational thought. I mean, that's, you, can, you can definitely go, this started right here. It's One of the few times in history you can actually do that. Because you know, like, history tends to flow and trend, and that's why philosophy can really, as Steve Martin said, mess you up if you remember parts of it. Number two, or the next slide. We learn from sensation and experience. Baby waddles over to the stove. The stove is warm. Baby touches stove. Baby goes, owie. Baby remembers, has now had an experience because of a sensation, right? And sensation in Locke's case is, the, you know, your senses. Smell, taste feel, hear, think, see. And truth is that which corresponds to reality, right? And the easiest example of that is weather, right? Spring tends to be warmer. Summer is very warm. These are real, real, realistic, real things. If I see a kid running around outside and that kid is looking behind him and runs full tilt into the tree, that actually happened because I, what, saw it. But then I also get the corresponding reality of the kids sitting there crying because they ran full tilt boogie into a tree and they remember it too, right? So now I can say that was real because I saw it and they can say, I oh, it was real because I felt it, right? These are very basic things that we all, uh, we all, No, in the sense of we have lived through them. And then the next slide should say, God exists, but is known through logic and observed reality. And that's what he said in the essay concerning human understanding. And a lot of our understanding of Locke stops right there. Hmm. And if it goes any further, it's because we've read bits or pieces of his two treatises on government. Right. Because we're into history and in the American founding. And we say, oh, that's where Jefferson got a lot of his ideas for, you know, the Declaration of Independence. Right. We all some of us might know that. Right. There's the contract theory of government. Y'all familiar with that? No. Yeah. Okay, the contract theory of government is something else that Locke put out. Very quickly, it's basically, I have, I am me, and I am running around in a state of nature if I'm not with government, right? I just do what I need to do, and I till my soil, and I feed my family, and once in a blue moon, I might interact with somebody else, but I'm off by myself doing my own thing until somebody bigger and stronger comes and wants to knock my house down, take my crops, and sell my family into slavery, right? I can't resist them on my own. So what I do is I make alliances or I make connections or a contract with other people. And if I get enough people, eventually what I have is a common wheel or a commonwealth, where we all agree that we're going to live under law, laws that we come up with, and the government's going to make sure that the laws are enforced and that our rights are protected. But if the government ever gets to the point where it thinks it's big, and it thinks it becomes the oppressor, we can say, no, bad government, stop. we dissolve dissolved this contract. We are going to start all over again. Does this sound familiar? It should sound familiar, even if you don't know what the term was. It should sound familiar because you're Americans. That's the way we do it in America. That's the way, Ameri- That's the way Dad did it. That's the way America does it. And it's turned out pretty well so far. Uh-huh, uh-huh, you know that one, right? Yeah. Shameless quote from Tony Stark. All right, so. God exists, but is known through logic and observed reality. So then what happens with Locke and the thinking that goes on after him is we get this uh, enlightenment, which is a very interesting If you try to kind of define the enlightenment, other than saying it's like happened in roughly this time zone between 1650 and maybe 1790 something you're going to you're going to get confused and frustrated because not all enlightenment thinkers even though they were in the enlightenment they didn't all think the same way they could all kind of agree on certain things the big things that they could agree on is that Logic is important, ratio, rationality. Rationality is important. you got to go from A to B, B to C, C to D. You don't jump from A to Z squared. you got to show your steps. And we can thank Descartes for that because Descartes was a what? Guys who were here last week, you know he was a what? Starts with an M? Mathematician, right? He really vibed with your husband, right? Descartes, yes, he did. Because... Descartes just lays out basically what he, his philosophy was basically how you solve a problem, a math problem. Life is a math problem. And people said, oh, Descartes, he's French, we like him, he's kind of cool. We can call, well, actually there's that whole school in the Enlightenment called the philosophes. You have to kind of, you know, do the dangling syllabants, you know, when you do it, you know, philosophes, because... <laughs> It makes you sound snobby, but in reality, a lot of these people were, were French, and we were skipping them, not because they're French, I, though I do have a bias against French philosophy. <laughs> um, but we're gonna, what? Mon Dieu! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At the time, we were kind of anti Anglo.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, they were, well, no, because, you know, they just, it's, we're talking about a bunch of nobles who are working on the backs of peasants and are sitting there sipping their wine and eating their cheese and eating their snails and coming up with some really wackadoo stuff like Rousseau had, Jean-Jacques Rousseau had never met what he called a savage, okay? He had never been to Polynesia. He'd never been to India. He'd never been to North America. And yet he's spouting off about The noble savage, you know, and how living in a state of nature and primitiveness is just, that's just bliss. And we really need to all get back to nature, man. It's going to be really groovy, you know. You know, but but I'm not going to give up my wine and my wine cellars and my big mansion or anything like that. I'm just going to tell you, you need to do it. (laughs) Incredibly destructive. Incredibly destructive because people say, oh, he really... Oh, he's got that cool French accent, and he really knows what he's talking about. <laughs> All kinds of interesting social experiments that ended badly and became cults spin out of Rousseau. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then you got Montaigne. Montaigne was a little more realistic. Montaigne's like, yeah, life stinks, but oh well. <laughs> Let us make the best out of it. Yeah. Wait, OK. Sorry, I got off on a tangent. Where was I? Locke, Lock, thank you. Enlightenment. OK, good. <laughs> Reality. So that's the Enlightenment. And we're going to talk about some other Enlightenment thinkers today. And uh, to finish up with Locke, if we could go to that slide that says we are capable All right. This is actually something from Locke towards the end of his life. So lest we tar him with the wrong brush. We are capable of knowing certainly that there is a God. He even though it sounds like he was denying revelation, he didn't in the end. He says, though, God has given us no innate ideas of himself. So he still has to get his little dig in. Right. There's no innate imprint of God in you. You don't know God in and of yourself. Because you're Tabula Rasa. There you go. Gold star. Top of the class. Good thing you brought her, Lanning. Though God has given us no innate ideas of himself, though he has stamped no original characters on our minds, wherein we may read his being. And there's another one, I'm sure, right? Yet having furnished us with those faculties our minds are endowed with, he hath not left himself without witness, Since we have no sense, perception, and reason, and cannot want a clear proof of him as long as we carry ourselves about us, nor can we justly complain of our ignorance in this great point, since he has so plentifully provided us with the means to discover and know him. So you don't know him in and of yourself, but he's given you a way to know him. Carry on so far as is necessary to the end of our being and the great concernment of our happiness. Underline happiness there. But though this be the most obvious truth that reason discovers, and though its evidence be, if I mistake not, equal to mathematical certainty, whoop, there's the math again, equal to mathematical certainty, yet it requires thought and attention, and the mind must apply itself to a regular deduction of it from some part of our intuitive knowledge or else we shall be as uncertain and ignorant of this as of other propositions, which are in themselves capable of clear demonstration. To show, therefore, that we are capable of knowing, for example, being certain that there is a God, and how we may come by this certainty, I think we need to go no further than ourselves and that undoubted knowledge we have of our existence." He, all, he knows also that nothing cannot produce a being. So nothing comes from nothing. Therefore, something must have existed from eternity. In the next place, man knows by an intuitive certainty that bare nothing can no more produce any real being than it can be equal to two right angles. It is impossible he should know any demonstration in Euclid if there is impossible to know any demonstration in Euclid. Sorry, there was a period. If, therefore, we know there is some real being and that non-entity cannot produce any real being, it is an evident demonstration that from eternity there has been something since what was not from eternity had a beginning and what had a beginning must be produced by something else. You all got that, right? No, truly, he does have a dizzying intellect. Basically, he's saying, you're here and you didn't come from nothing. So there has to have been something to have made you, right? We have a whole school, uh, or we used to have a sub-school. I don't know if they've been lost now. There's a whole bunch of people who talk about um, modern twenty. 20s, they talk about uh, intelligent design. Mm -hmm. All right. So there has to have been something because nothing comes from nothing. And as you know, the famous nun said, nothing comes from nothing and nothing ever could. Right. Okay. So that's Locke. That's Locke saying basically, uh, we can believe in God because it's logical. he also talks about the Bible. He also talks about Jesus being salvation and justification and all that kind of stuff. But again, he's, bless his heart, he's still trying to stick reason and connect it and saying, I don't know. I go back and forth on whether he was actually trying to say reason is primary and revelation is secondary, on whether he was just trying to cover both bases. I don't know. But this is something that you're not going to hear in American Civics 101, right? What you're going to hear is that Locke was a deist and Jefferson got his ideas from a deist. And therefore, we can justify permeations. We can justify what? There you go. Or what we call it in America, we call it the separation of church and state. Okay. Okay. So these thoughts, <laughs> ideas, that's why I love uh, Sproul's little book, The Consequences of Ideas, because ideas have consequences, right? They do have consequences. And we're living with those consequences from this man from the 1690s, died 1704. We're living, we, we literally, us, folks in this room are living with consequences of these ideas, and if you're going to be a Christian in this culture, which is the whole point of this, these four little classes, right, you need to be aware, at least peripherally aware, that this stuff is going on. And as Thoreau said, the masses of men lead lives of quiet desperation. They don't think. They're not thinking about these things because they have other things to think about. They're thinking about feeding their families. They're thinking about pleasing their boss. They never stopped to question or, you know, survival mode. Yeah. So next slide should say something like the question. If we know God exists because we exist and if there are no innate ideas and if we only know things through sense and experience, which would seem to exclude revelation. This is just this is a rhetorical question, but maybe not something for you all to ponder. Where does the idea of sin come from? Well, we've seen that Locke gives some credence to the Holy Scriptures, so. But Voltaire, who thought Locke was wonderful and was another one of those French philosophes, and I have not bothered to afflict you people with Voltaire, because you want to talk about grumpy, cynic, okay? okay? who worshiped at the altar of reason unless it became convenient for him to not, right? I will say, the, you know, another reason to skip Voltaire, if Frederick the Great didn't like him after staying with him for a few months. All right, but this question, where does the idea of sin come from? Maybe there is no sin, right? No such thing as sin. Then we have the question. Oh, no, we don't have the question. All right. So now we're going to skip ahead. We're going to go ahead a few, roughly 75 years, not quite 100, and we're going to go to this next fella. And you're going to get introduced to this next fella through a giant quote, so buckle in. All right, go ahead. This guy is trying to come up with Okay, so if reason is paramount, how do we get to how do we get to living a good life? All right. So he starts off whatsoever should thus be universally useful as a standard to which men should conform their manners must have its authority either from reason or revelation. So at least lip service to revelation. Keep going. Tis not every writer of morals or compiler of it from others They can thereby be erected into a lawgiver to mankind and a dictator of rules, which are therefore valid because they are to be found in his books under the authority of this or that philosopher. So should we really listen to what all these philosophers are telling us? Keep going. He that anyone will pretend to set up in this kind and have his rules pass for authentic directions must show that either he builds his doctrine upon principles of reason Self-evident in themselves, and that he deduces all the parts of it from thence by clear and evident demonstration, or must show his commission from heaven, that he comes with authority from God to deliver his will and commands to the world in the former way nobody that I know before our Savior's time ever did or went, oh, we're back to lock again, or went about to give us a morality. I think my slides got messed up. Nope, that's Locke again. Sorry. I...
0: Yeah.
1: Yep, yeah, that one. Tis true, there. F- I'm sorry, guys, I thought we were moving ahead to Kant, but we weren't because I forgot about Hume. Tis true, there is a law of nature, but who there... Who is there that ever did or undertook to give it to us all entire as a law, no more or less than what was contained in and had the obligation of the law? So that's Locke. That's his reasonableness of Christianity. But it's basically a quote to show you what I had already told you because I forgot to put the quote in there because I'm still getting Sorry about that. Any questions about that one, though? Can I ask you a question about that? Sure.
0: Mention uh, of intuitive certainty fall in if he believes that we were born and that you know everything is gained by or experience.
1: That's a very good question.
0: Because I think he's, a, I think he's given, at least giving nod to that there is something, an intuition or something that we are born.
1: Yeah and if you go back to his essay concerning human understanding he really parses all that out between like sense and experience and then he actually says because this was over a the essay concerning human understanding comes from a conversation he was having with a couple of other exiled British philosopher types and they drank too much and they couldn't get to the bottom of it and so he but it still bothered him when he woke up the next day so he went ahead and just slice, 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 cut, cut, cut to the point where he got, he mentions intuition in that, but I can't, I don't think his answer would have satisfied you if, okay. even if I had it. Okay. I was
0: just wondering where it fell in, because he seems to at least give a nod
1: to it. He does, he does.
0: And actually mentioned intuition twice.
1: But he talks about it, and remember, this is much later, this is towards the end of his life, the reasonableness of Christianity. Which is why Voltaire said Locke was good when he started, but he was lame when he finished because Voltaire hated the church. Yeah, yeah he he slices in, intuition up. It comes under uh, it's under his theory of how ideas get stuck in your head, like how you actually get an idea. It's, how you get an idea is a synthesis between experience, and sensation. But it starts with sensation, then it goes to experience, but then reflection has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. So that it's almost like having experienced this thing, now that you see it again, you can kind of intuit how it's gonna, ha- how it's gonna go. Also, oh, it's really, he's
0: really, it just saying observation,
1: but. Right, right, it's but he doesn't. Like an intuition. Yeah, but he doesn't call, yeah, he doesn't call it observation, but. Uh, I would encourage you if you want to get into it. I mean, the essay concerning human understanding is online. You can just, I would recommend chunking it though. Like read, because he has it divided up. Read a heading, think about it, go to another one, the next one, read that. Make sure you put like little bookmarks and underlines. Because I can only ever understand this stuff if it's printed out. You know, I have to be able to mess with it. I can't, you know, this whole modern thing of, oh, I'm just looking at it on a screen, and I can highlight this, and I can put it in my notes file, which is or you could just write it on a piece of paper, put it on a sticky note, then every time you turn on your computer, you're looking at it, and you're going, oh, what does it mean, what does it mean, what does it mean, what does it mean? Is it worth all this effort that I'm putting into it? I say no. All right. So are we up to David Hume now? Yeah. Okay. That's not his official title. That's my title for (laughs) (laughs) it. David Hume was a British. Well, actually he's born in Scotland. So there you go. David Hume, the headache inducer, his key point he examined causality and other things in an inquiry concerning human understanding and came to the conclusion that that neither cause nor effect can be considered objective qualities, since anything can be considered either a cause or an effect depending on the point of view, which would make him a? Relativist. Not quite. Starts with an S, we've already encountered it. He's the, he is the skeptic's skeptic. Yes, the, depending on the point of view is relativism. But overall, it's a skeptical, it's a skepticism. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, and we have the quote from uh, Sproul. We have the quote from Sproul. And I'm synthesizing Hume because he will, I'm using Sproul to synthesize Hume because Sproul did the reading. I've done the reading and Yes, it gives you a headache. Since the idea of causality arises through the process of relation, we have no original sensation or impression of causality itself. Since we cannot know distinctly, cannot know distinctly, we cannot. No, no, something's wrong with that. Since we cannot. Know distinctly or perceive the cause of anything. Yeah. Yeah, since anything, yeah, since neither cause nor effect can be considered objective quality, since anything can be considered either a cause or an effect depending on the point of view. Since the idea of causality arises through the process of relation, we have no original sensation or impression of causality itself. Since we cannot know distinctly or perceive the cause of anything, we cannot never we can never know with certainty what is causing it. And if you've ever studied him, he's the guy with the whole billiard table thing with the cue and the billiard ball and you know the guy lines up the shot and but what's the cause of the ball rolling? Is it the cue? Is it the guy pushing the cue? Is it the idea of the guy as he lines up the cue to make his shot, you know, you know? Is it the, is it the gas that he suffered when he bent over, you know? Is it?
0: This is not actually that difficult, right? Like, the cause of the ball rolling is the impact of the cue. The cause of the cue moving is your hands on the cue. Like, there are predicate causes for each
1: state. Yeah, but it's, it says you, right? No, 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 no. But where, where does, so where does Hume come down? Do you remember? No, because I think I
0: found him obnoxious and not
1: useful. There you go. <laughs> There you go. So the cause of you not getting to the what Hume actually said. (laughs) I'm kidding. Ouch. Yes. So but but Hume plants that seed, right? So if we're going to use reason and we're going to try and figure it all out, Hume comes in as the grumpy Scotsman and says, aye, you can't figure that out, lady. You're never going to get to the bottom of it. Have some more (laughs) haggis. Yeah, I mean, but he had, but people read his stuff. People read his stuff, and they say, "Oh, this guy's onto something. He's a brilliant intellect." What? I
0: said until they really think
1: about it. Well, he's a skeptic. So, what? What's the? What's? What's he going to say about? The Bible What's he going to say About Christ What's he going to say About Revelation He's going to say what You can't know it,
0: you can't know it. So he never has to Explain anything He just has to Poke holes in everything
1: else And reap yeah. the resi- And reap the residuals And the royalties Because people Bought his books People might buy his books Because he says What they want to hear Couldn't be
0: I think that's true of all the philosophies. We twist mm. ourselves into practice to find systems that align with what, the way we want things to be.
1: But the beautiful thing is, next week we're going to untwist ourselves, and we're just going to go with our guts.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, Emmanuel Kant. Yes, sir.
0: Are there are skeptics ever skeptical of their own works?
1: Yes. Because then, they would, if they weren't, they would be what?
0: <laughs>
1: no, they would be intellectually dishonest and they like, to, they, like to, they like to be able to have the patina of I've really thought about this and, you know. Thou shalt listen to me because, and pay me lots of money and. So must be smart. I, At this
0: point, that it is important to understand the distinction between demonstrating that something is not true and simply asking questions that you don't ever intend to answer.
1: Well, can you actually prove to me that God exists?
0: See, that's one of those ones that you can't answer. But there are other things that are actual logical contradictions. Logical contradictions are useful for understanding truth, whereas simply making unanswerable statements are not.
1: Well, and that's what gets us to Kant, right? <laughs> Kant should be up there by now. Arguably the most influential philosopher that most people have never heard of. He's Prussian by birth, came from a Protestant family, a very faithful Protestant family, went to school, graduated, didn't like tutoring jobs, and so went back to the university and never left. And he wrote a lot of stuff. He wrote about philosophy, epistemology and metaphysics, both sides of philosophy because they divided philosophy up in those days. Anthropology, Ethics, Law, Astronomy, Physics, and Aesthetics, which a guy, he wrote about beauty, and he was serious about this stuff. You read The Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysics? of Congratulations, (laughs) you are one in probably 500,000. I never read the whole thing. I read what Professor McClellan told me to read because you did not not do what Professor McClellan told you to do. Fundamental Principles of the Metaphysics of Morals, ginormous quote. Now I say, man and generally any rational being exists as an end in himself, not merely as a means to be arbitrarily used by this or that will, but in all his actions, whether they concern himself or other rational beings, must be always regarded at the same time as an end. All objects of the inclinations have only a conditional worth for if the inclinations and the wants founded on them did not exist, then their object would be without value. But the inclinations themselves being sources of want are so far from having an absolute worth for which they should be desired that on the contrary, it must be the universal wish of every rational being to be wholly free from them. Thus, the worth of any object which is to be acquired by our actions is always conditional. Beings whose existence depends not on our will, but on nature's, have nevertheless, if they are irrational beings, only a relative value as means, and are therefore called things. Rational beings, on the contrary, are called persons because their very nature points them out as ends in themselves, that is, as something which must not be used merely as a means, and so far therefore restricts freedom of action and is an object of respect. These, therefore, are not merely subjective ends whose existence has a worth for us as an effect of our action, but objective ends, that is, things whose existence is an end in itself, an end moreover for which no other can be substituted, which they should subserve merely, merely as means, for otherwise nothing whatever would possess absolute worth. But if all worth were conditioned and therefore contingent, then there would be no supreme practical principle of reason whatsoever. If then there is a supreme practical principle or in respect of the human will, a categorical imperative, it must be one which being drawn from the conception of that which is necessarily an end for everyone because it is an end in itself, constitutes an objective principle of will and can therefore serve as a universal practical law. The foundation of this principle is, rational nature exists as an end in itself. Let's read that again. The foundation of this principle is, rational nature exists as an end in itself. Man necessarily conceives his own existence as being so, so far then is this a subjective principle of human actions. But every other rational being regards its existence similarly just on the same rational principle that holds for me, so that it is all at the same time an objective principle from which, as a supreme practical law, all laws of the will must be capable of being deduced. Accordingly, the practical imperative will be as follows So act as to treat humanity, whether in thine own person or in that of any other, in every case as an end withal, never as a means only. We will now inquire whether this can be practically carried out. So a summation from a great teacher to walk away from walk away with Kant's version of the golden rule is this act as if the maximum of your action were to become a universal law of nature because have I lost y'all? Because mankind exists not as a what? But as an (coughs) end. It's all on you, man. You weren't put here to serve God. You were put here because you're a rational being and you can basically figure this out for for yourself. So Kant's catechism. He actually had a catechism. What is your greatest yes your whole desire in life? He asked the student. The student doesn't answer because the student is intimidated. So Kant says... It is called happiness, constant well-being, a pleasant life, complete satisfaction with one's condition.
0: Yeah. It would seem to me that that long quote could also point to man being created in God's image.
1: Well, how would you accurately reflect Kant? So, that's Kant's catechism. That he actually wrote that. that
0: that's from him.
1: That's from him.
0: I don't think it's logically consistent with that previous statement. Well. <laughs> what about Because according to the previous statement, if everyone's an end in their self and you have to do this universally, it would be universal happiness, not individual happiness. Like that logically doesn't flow.
1: But doesn't it start with you?
0: Right, but if you maximize-
1: I mean, you, you can't just decree universal happiness, you have to-
0: But that's the whole principle of maximization over like everyone is an end in themselves, right? Then it has to become universal. That's how you know it's universal, is because it's a good to you and the good to everyone. That's what narrows it down to what is the moral theory, is that you meet both criteria, and then if you it doesn't meet both criteria, then you don't do. It.
1: All it. right, I'm sorry. I've got. To, I'm supposed to wrap up. There's also,
0: there's also John Piper's concept of Christian hedonism, which is is interesting with this catechism.
1: No. It's interesting that Piper, well, no, I'm not surprised. All right, things to ponder. How often do you encounter people who consider themselves virtuous because they try to do the right thing? Ever ask them how they know what the right thing to do is? All right. Again, broad brushing. I'm glad that you guys want to argue or debate. I think that's great. And I would encourage you to go back and read some of this stuff if it bothers you. And to think for yourself. But at the same time, don't forget why we're here. Why are we here?
0: Jesus. Know how to think in a world.
1: To know how to think like Christ in a world and to be able to examine our own assumptions. Because sometimes we think we're following Jesus, and we have the intent to, but these competing philosophies are out there, and we, we imbibe them sometimes almost with our mother's milk, so to speak. So, you know, it's really, it's really humbling, actually. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the many, many blessings that you've given us We thank you that you have given us reason and thank God you've given us yourself. We pray that we would always cling to you first and last and always an in between. In Jesus name, amen.